0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Good afternoon to everyone. Um, My name is uh, Dylan Riley and I'm a professor of sociology in the Department of Sociology here at at Berkeley and a member of the uh, Bernard Moses Lectureship Committee. And uh, we are, of course, enormously pleased and excited to present um, Arlie Hochschild, this year's speaker, uh, at the Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture Series this afternoon. And um, before presenting uh, Professor Hochschild, I'm just going to describe a little bit um, about what this lecture series is about. It's part of the obligation of the uh, bequest. But he's a very interesting person, so. In 1937, uh, University of California President Robert Gordon Sproul, Sproul Plaza, and the UC Board of Regents established the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectureship in the Social Sciences. And the lectureship honors the memory of uh, Bernard Moses, who was a professor of history and political science at Berkeley. He was a kind of universal intellectual. He wrote books... Uh, ranging from, you know, studies of constitutionalism in uh, Latin America to Swiss democracy to the rise of uh, the German Empire in the late 19th century. And he was a professor uh, at the university from 1875 to 1911, and then emeritus uh, from 1911 until 1930 when when he died under worldwide reputation for his various contributions and really, in a way, for establishing the tradition of comparative politics uh, at Berkeley. The lecture series has uh, featured uh, in the recent past such eminent speakers as Herma Kilkay, Nicholas Ryazanovsky, George Lakoff, Kenneth Stamp, Carolyn Merchant, Jean Lave, Emmanuel Saez, Mary Ann Mason, and uh, sociology's very own Anne Swidler. And now um, I'd like to turn to uh, our speaker for this afternoon, uh, Professor Arlie Hochschild. Um, Professor Hochschild is a distinguished, uh, really eminent American sociologist. Um, Her most uh, recent work that she's going to be speaking about uh, today explores uh, the experiences, beliefs, and deep story of the American right, obviously a very timely matter. Um, and this is encapsulated in her book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Um, this text was based on five years of research in Louisiana's oil and petrochemical belt. So if you go out, um, obviously, into, into the delta of the Mississippi River, this is where these, these things are located, um, where she interviewed Tea Party enthusiasts. Um, The book was a New York Times bestseller, and it was a finalist as well for the uh, National Book Award. Um, This latest uh, book uh, sort of um, culminates an incredibly impressive career uh, with such great titles as The Time Bind, The Second Shift, The Managed Heart, So How's the Family and Other Essays, The Outsourced Self, and um, Global uh, Women. Her publications have been translated into 16 uh, languages, and she has contributed to efforts in uh, global feminist community programs. And she has also written a children's story uh, entitled Colleen, the Question Girl. Um, I'd like to just say um, a couple of words about uh, Professor Hochschild as a a sociologist um, before uh, turning the floor over to her. I would say that. Really, kind of as a group, sociologists are generally characterized by two traits. One is that they're terrible writers. And the other is that they have a kind of a penchant for inventing totally unnecessary terminology to describe the obvious. And what I think is really admirable about uh, Professor Hochschild's work is its complete break with both of these uh, traditions in the discipline. as anyone who's looked at this most recent book or any of her work knows she's a great, uh, great prose writer. Very rare um, in in our discipline. And second, uh, the concepts that she brings to bear on her analyses emotional labor, second shift, deep story, um, not only encapsulate and reveal uh, underlying elements of social reality that we wouldn't have seen before they are often, in fact, reincorporated into our social imagination in a way that's really only comparable to the great sociologist Robert Merton with his uh, you know, concepts such as self-fulfilling prophecy and so on. So it's really an unusual scholar um, and a, a truly great sociologist, and uh, it's really my pleasure to welcome Professor Arlie Hochschild to the Moses Lecture Series this afternoon. <laughs>
2: what a great pleasure uh, to be here. You know, actually, I House was the very first uh, building I stepped into, uh, almost trembling, uh, as a first-year graduate student uh, uh, here in Berkeley, and I, I stayed here for my first uh, month. Uh, I actually even have a... Uh, a small box that says I House on it, which contained all my my worldly possessions. So um, here I am again. Um, so uh, what I thought I'd try and do uh, today is first uh, take you with me on a journey that I've uh, returned from, uh, tell you the question I went in with, Um, But the findings I came out with, and then share with you some of the responses I've had uh, to uh, the second shift, and then deal with kind of one of the fundamental questions that I think the book raises of uh, the efficacy the wisdom, the capacity to reach over the growing partisan divide in this country today. Can we do it? Is it worth doing? What happens? Uh, and what would be the result of that? So let me begin by saying that um, I started in 2011. Uh, Realizing that I, Berkeley, now my home all these years, I was living in a political and moral bubble. It was a geographic bubble. Uh, you you know from this uh, uh, book, The Big Sort, that when people move, it's increasingly not for uh, better, cheaper housing and uh, uh, and better jobs, but for compatibility uh, cultural and political, and I also found myself in a media bubble I read the New York Times religiously and the uh, uh, and an electronic bubble, the way all of us are our computers give us back to ourselves, as you know, algorithmically and i didn 't know. Anyone that would be suspicious, say, of a word like international here international house, or would think that Berkeley and things public, public universities and parks were were suspect, and that even the government itself was uh, more problem than solution i didn 't know anyone like that, and it turned out i wasn 't alone. A recent Pew study showed that nearly half, 47%, of people who planned to vote for Hillary Clinton didn't have any close friends who were Trump supporters. And same number say that if a friend supported Trump, it would put a strain on their friendship. And um, so... In fact, Democrats turn out to be substantially less able uh, to countenance friends who support the, quote, wrong candidates. Just 13% of Republicans say a friend's support of Hillary Clinton would strain their relationship. So many reasons for that imbalance, but um, I was, in some strange way, kind of relieved, okay, I wasn't the only one. (laughs) So I decided, you know what, uh, I'm going to try and find a bubble that's as far right as the sociology department at Berkeley, California, in the blue state of California, is left. I thought, well, where would that be? That would be in the south, where we know the right has risen the fastest and strongest, But where in the South? Well, how about the super-South? And I discovered that in 2012, looking at the proportion of whites who voted for Barack Obama in the whole region of the South, 13 states, it was a third. But in Louisiana, it was 14%. So I thought, perfect. Okay, let's let's go there. And let's... uh, let's, uh, Within Louisiana... uh, uh, there, there is a region that where the petrochemical industry is concentrated, and uh, as, as luck would have it, I had one contact who was through a former graduate student of mine in sociology. His mother-in-law uh, lived in a in a town called Lake Charles, so I started there, not thinking that this would be more than a taster of just getting just seeing what what it felt like. I wasn't sure it was a book yet. So, um, and I brought with me um, the paradox. Um, how many have read the book? So I don't want to repeat too much. Oh, okay. All right. Good, I asked. Um, the paradox was the red state paradox that uh, how could it be That the poorest states, the states with the worst schools and hospitals, the the most road accidents, the um, lowest life expectancy, worst health, uh, most pollution, are all those so the states that receive more money from the federal government in aid than they give to it in uh, tax dollars and revile the federal government. That was the, the red state paradox. And Louisiana was an exaggerated version of that. Second poorest state, 44% of its state budget came from the federal government, and super Tea Party. uh, Very enthusiastic, very right wing, and in the end, extremely uh, enthusiastic about uh, Donald Trump. So, and I also discovered that as I kind of sniffed the air around Lake Charles and got in the Went over the I-10 bridge to Westlake, um, this is in Southwest Louisiana, and uh, uh, petrochemical plants all around. My eyes would begin to sting, and it, it was the, the sky was like it is today, um, and there was people all had bottled water. So I thought, wait a minute, something is talking to me. Maybe, maybe the environment is what I should look at. This pollution because people in Louisiana that I came to know were adamantly against regulating any kind of industry, including the polluters. So they were living in one of the most polluted spots in the entire world, and they were opposed to pollution. I thought, this is my keyhole issue. Let me just look at that and get to know people. Well, five years later, uh, 50 interviews later, over 4,000 pages of transcript later, I, I came to realize that the question I had come with was my question. People would respond to it by saying, yeah, yeah, we, we know about the Red State Paradox. It's an embarrassment to us. They knew about it. Uh, they lived with it. But they set it aside knowledgeable about it. So it wasn't a question of not knowing. It was a question of its not being the main point. So um, I thought, well, if, if that's one thing I learned, the low importance attributed to this question. But as I got to know people, um, I, I began to uh, realize that values, the way values express themselves, the way values value is by making a story feel true. And the way circumstances really imprint themselves is, again, the way it makes people believe a story to be true. So I've I made up a story that I thought fit everything I was hearing over that period of time. And what is a what is a deep story? A deep story is a story that feels true. It's described by the objective correlative of feelings. That is, it's what all the details you believe to be true. <laughs> Um, that account for why you feel what you feel. You feel mourning, you feel lost, you feel uh, envy, you feel uh, anger. Um, and those are in, told in this story, which, to refresh you, um, goes like this. And by the way, all of us have, underneath our political uh, beliefs, a deep story. You're waiting in line, and your feet are pointed toward uh, the top of the hill, as in a dream. It tells itself by metaphor. And you see at the top the American dream. And you don't see anything behind it that's causing changes in it. You just see the distance between you and it. You're not looking behind you in line either, and the line hasn't moved. People hadn't had a raise in two decades, and they were tired. They were in their 50s and 60s. This was it. Um, Life was uh, narrowing down. And then they notice someone cutting ahead. Well, who's that? Well, that would be blacks finally, through federally mandated affirmative action plans, given access to jobs that have historically been reserved for whites and even worse, women who now, through federally mandated affirmative action, are finally given jobs uh, that have historically been reserved for men. I'm an example. So these line cutters, and then we would have undocumented workers, and even for them, the oil-soaked brown pelican, Louisiana state bird, uh, it seems to be cutting in line. People told me time and time again, um, oh, those liberal environmentalists put put animals ahead of people. Right. Animists. And then another moment of the right-wing deep story. It looks like Barack Obama, who should be the impartial uh, supervisor of this line, this country, seems to be waving to the line-cutter. Oh, He's, he's their president. He he's doesn't see us. He's, in fact, isn't he a line cutter? And here was a little paranoid streak that would, would kick in. Oh, how did his mother, poor woman, not a woman of, of, of not wealthy, afford a Harvard education, a Columbia education? Something fishy, something rigged. It would would come after that observation. No such thing as scholarships for brilliant students. So it's rigged. So in another moment of the right wing deep story. Someone from the coast, maybe from Berkeley, um, maybe a woman, would would get up and was way ahead in line and turn back. And say, "Oh, you to the to the person waiting in the line who's who's been there forever. You homophobic, racist, sexist, fat <laughs> redneck." And that was the word "redneck" that you could almost see. It was a tipping point term. Of uh, I have been dissociated. I have been non-personed. I am a stranger in my own land. I've worked this hard, I'm working hard, and so on, deserving American dream. Redneck kind of uh, made them, cast them adrift. And of course the environment wasn't theirs. They didn't feel like the culture was theirs. They didn't feel like uh, religion. They were highly religious, and they felt relig- the growth of secularism and um, As whites, they saw the country changing its complexion, and they uh, felt that even the bayou they looked out on, they couldn't swim in, they couldn't eat the fish from, it wasn't theirs either. So there was a moment of estrangement and strangeness. And actually, a later study a survey found that those who answered yes in a poll, that they felt like strangers in their own country, this was uh, Atlantic uh, studies, were three and a half times more likely to vote for Donald Trump. And I felt that at the end of my odyssey um, Donald Trump was coming for the first time to um, a primary rally in New Orleans. And he hadn't won the primary. He, He was just coming, but in Louisiana, this was the next day. And seeing the crowd, seeing the excitement of... Uh, And here he comes down from the sky in the Donald Trump plane, you know, almost, uh, you know, like descended from heaven, right? And he uh, was uh, the emotions uh, candidate, you know. Look how emotional we are. We're not the silent majority. We're the noisy majority. And, And he promised, in essence... He hit the theme of loss. They did feel they had lost something. He hit that, and he hit the theme of blame. Who to blame for the loss? That would be the line cutters. And he hit the theme of, of uplift and rescue, you know, great again. It was almost, I came to feel like a secular rapture. I'm going to take you up to heaven with me. And in fact, if you look at some of the pictures of the top floor of Trump Tower, uh, it looked very much like people's description of heaven. Everything was gold. So... I concluded, came home scratching my head um, and saying, look, I started with this red state paradox, but really um, I'm going home with a blue state paradox. How could it be that the Democratic Party, the party of the working man and the working women, did not speak to them? I didn't see any glimmer of, uh, in their eye. Um, with regard to Hillary's candidacy, how could this be? Some of them, by the way, would um, had, had nice things to say about Bernie Sanders. Some of these extremely right-wing uh, uh, Tea Party people would say, Oh, Uncle Bernie. Uncle Bernie, well, he's a socialist, You can't. we are a capitalist country, and he's promising pie in the sky, but friendly feeling. He means well. So I came home with the blue state paradox. Now, what I'd like to share with you today is what some of the responses to the book have been. I've been on another odyssey with regard to that. Um, I went home uh, and when the book came out the next uh, week I sent out copies of it to the people that uh, I'd written about and who had helped me and I went back to Louisiana, put a dinner on for them, another one for the people I dedicated the book to and one of the characters Janice Areno, if you've read, she was the company loyalist and very tough and uh, she came to the dinner with uh, a jacket and she came up to me and said, "Do you want to see what I have on under my jacket?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she pulled it open and it said "Adorable deplorables." <laughs> I'm going to send you one of these. <laughs> but you have to wear it. <laughs> no promises. So um, so they liked the description of themselves. You know, in fact, this Janice would say, Arlie, you have a swear word in my chapter. <laughs> Your chapter, she felt that's uh, proprietary about her chapter. Well, I did have uh, a swear word there, but it was uh, quoting uh, Cher Bono, who has a transgender child and who uh, was complaining about the F Tea Party. So I had that in there in order to account for uh, Janice Arena, my respondent's, um, hatred of Hollywood. and uh, But that was... Never mind, she didn't want the swear word in her chapter. Did they read Appendix C, which had all the facts that were taken out of the deep story? No. I began receiving letters on my email from people across the country. Let me give you, uh, let me share one with you here. This is from a young man, 23 he began, I live 15 miles outside a small, one stoplight town of 2,500 in rural Virginia. I've lived here in Gretna for all 23 years of my life, save for the four years I spent at the University of Virginia. Half a mile deep in the woods behind my house is an abandoned grave of a 19-year-old Confederate private I found it one day when I was hunting. I was 19 myself at the time, and standing there with a rifle in my hand, I had to reckon with that. What was really the difference between me and him in that very moment, except for the time in which fate placed us? Fields that were once full of tobacco now go unplanted. Old plantation homes lie in despair. The furniture plant where my grandfather worked has closed down. The textile mill where my grandmother worked has been bulldozed down. The jobs outsourced overseas. At the end, he thanks me for listening and then wonders if he should come to the sociology department at Berkeley. <laughs> An older woman writes... I'm writing from our farmhouse in Fairview, Kansas. I was sewing this afternoon and listening to a Canadian podcast from 2016 and a Grace video in which you discuss the state of people across America. You know, the number of dairies around here has dropped dramatically over the years. The larger dairies employ a couple of high school boys to work morning and evenings. The boys go to work at 3 a.m., and after work, they stop at Casey's for biscuits and gravy, and bring the rig, bring with the with them with them to school to eat before the tardy bell rings at eight. She goes on, uh, thanks me for listening, and wants to set up a high school exchange program. A middle-aged woman writes. I'm from northeastern Kentucky. Appalachia is the sister area to Louisiana. I came to Christ in the Methodist Church as a child, and during the charismatic renewal in the 1960s, my mother started going to a Pentecostal church. My walk with God is personal every day and outside of the physical church. My problem as a Christian is this. I find myself on the outside of the Christian church because of the politics that consumes it. Thanks for listening. Just one more. As a female Indian Muslim, another young woman writes, living in a conservative part of America, I often felt disliked and discriminated against, which led to my hatred of many of those in my community. Reading your book has changed my perspective and made it easier to share my beliefs, to help create understanding and feel, feel more understanding towards those I once disregarded. One more. Um, I hail from Lake Charles, uh, Louisiana. My brother works at the company formerly known as Pittsburgh Plate Glass central to many of my stories, and lives under the chlorine cloud in the shadow cast by the cranes building Sassol in Westlake. I was surrounded by the milieu you capture so well. It's been hard to read your book, very hard to read your book, but I thank you for it. Now, I've been very moved by these Responses. And it's raised for me a question about reaching out to heal this partisan divide, or as I describe in the book, climb an empathy wall um, across this partisan divide. Now, um, there are people who say, you know what, that's a fool's errand. There was a review of this book, it was respectful but really took a different line, uh, fra- by Frank Rich in New York Magazine this last spring in which he said, you know what, don't waste your empathy. We need anger. And it's uh, it's, uh, it's a waste of time to talk to any of these people. And someone I very much respect normally. <laughs> and um, Katha Pollitt, again, in The Nation, takes very respectful, but she said, really, uh, hold on to your anger, don't waste any, any breath. And that got me to uh, the place where I am, just speaking personally to that very question of the efficacy of reaching across this growing divide. The way I see it at this uh, frightening political moment is that we have three possible pillars of activism. One, the first one, is to address our attention to all our action toward the defense of the principle of checks and balances, uh, independent press, a, a revered and independent judiciary, so that no president would put himself above the law. This, I think, is number one, and you don't need to talk to anyone who disagrees with you to pursue pillar one. Pillar two, for me, would be to turn to the, the democratic platform which does not speak to the people I came to know and those like them and to engage in electoral politics and again you wouldn't need to talk to anyone you uh, disagree with uh, to engage pillar two and then there's pillar three um, and you can say well look I I don't want to talk to the hardcore neo-Nazis we saw in Charlottesville, and I'm with you in that. But if we think about what by some estimates are 8.5 million people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and then switched to Donald Trump in 2016, would you want to talk to some of them? Or... If you look at the, by some estimates, one out of three, other estimates, one out of four, high school educated whites, blue collar whites, who would have voted for Bernie Sanders if he had been the candidate, uh, Democratic candidate, but instead voted for someone else, majority for Trump, would they be of interest? Once you'd selected who it is you thought it would be interesting to climb the empathy wall with, Um, how uh, would you do it? Um, And why would you do it? My thought is that these three pillars of activism need to be coordinated with each other. And if you really want to revamp a platform, you better know what the response to it would be. And if you want to defend uh, really the whole principle of checks and balances that underlies our democracy, you better know how people see it and how they feel about it uh, so that these should be coordinated. And like in the British sort of loyal opposition kind of um, Coordinated uh, and acting in unison, so you don 't have to talk to people you disagree with you don 't need to climb that empathy wall, but what you do need to do, I believe, is see the reason for doing it, and the reason uh, for doing it uh, I think uh, is uh, two uh, twofold one is uh, moral. I've felt again in in the mail I'm getting a lot of moral sort of wish to heal this divide. Another quote. A woman wrote that she was part of an Episcopal church in Massachusetts, and she wanted to get in touch with a congregation in Lake Charles. And did I know of a parishioner that she could contact? Well, luck had it. I did. Called my... Louisiana friend up, and uh, they are now in touch. Um, and so, if but do you, if you got together with someone, how would you how would you do it? In in what way would you do it? Would you just get there and say, "Here's what I believe. I think this is true, and you've got a deep story, and it's not true." <laughs> Or would you say, different as we are, maybe there are strips of common ground on particular issues. And uh, those issues could be getting money out of politics. They could be reducing prison populations. Uh, They uh, could be... um, Uh, alternative energy. There's something called the Green Tea Party. Did you know that? They're they're tea party people for alternative energy. Check it out. Uh, Someone I'm Deborah Dooley now in Florida. So, strips of common ground. So, I'm not envisioning two, one kind of right-wing moderate getting together with one kind of left-wing moderate morphing. That's one model for talking, but uh, there, there's also possibility when you completely disagree on basic principles, but um, get a discourse of respect and empathic basis. I went back to one man, this one who was very enthusiastic Tea Party. He's, he was born on a, a sugar plantation in the Old South. He worked in oil all his adult life, and he was big Tea Party and Trump. His name was Mike. And uh, last time I went back, I was with my son, who was a big environmentalist. I was trying to see if they could come to Common Ground on uh, ending pollution. And uh, my son asked him, well, Mike, do you have any hesitations about Donald Trump? And if you looked at Mike's Facebook, it was just, you know, all flags and Trump. But he answered in a spirit of openness where do I begin? (laughs) So a lot is in the very spirit you establish of mutual respect across deep differences. The other is what I think of as symbol stretching. I just did an op-ed for the Washington Post on this. There's, what is a symbol stretch? It's when you... Um, you notice what the symbols are of the person you're talking to, and you you nod to that symbol, but you stretch it to something they're not thinking about. I followed around an extraordinary man named General Russell Honore, who is a three-star uh, general... In, uh, and was the rescuer of the victims of uh, Katrina in New Orleans. He's now an ardent environmentalist, and he goes around talking to people who don't agree with him on the environment. And I uh, was there watching him when he was talking to some very conservative uh, um, businessmen in Lake Charles. And their talk was all about freedom. The freedom to start your own business. The freedom to get as rich as you want. You know, the freedom from big, heavy government regulations. Freedom. And so this general got up and he said, I woke up this morning and I looked out at Lake Charles and I saw a man in a boat And he had his fishing line out, and he had his bucket ready. But that man is not free to lift out an uncontaminated fish. I thought, you genius. (laughs) You just stretched the symbol of freedom over to something they hadn't thought about. And I followed him around wherever he went, to see how he stretched symbols. So there are ways, kind of the skills of the mediator that we can um, that we can use. There is actually for all of the focus on a growing partisan divide and increasing bitterness and brittleness, uh, consolidation of each poll um, under the. An extremely divisive leadership, shall we say. Um, A grassroots movement of bridging. And if you were to Google tonight something called the Bridge Alliance, you would find some 70 or 80 different small organizations with funny names like Hi from the Other Side. Or uh, Living Room Conversations, which is started by uh, uh, Joan Blades, the co-founder of MoveOn.org here in Berkeley. Uh, She's a labor, a mediator uh, by training. And that bring left and right to see for if there is, uh, they can find um, common ground on particular issues there is a Bridge Berkeley, and the, uh, one of the young men in it, uh, by the name of John Ryder, John, you, you know, uh, has, um, has tried to get left and right together on uh, climate change. And actually, uh, he and I were emailing, and I was in... Uh, Baton Rouge. He said, oh, what are you doing in Baton Rouge? I said, well, I'm giving a talk. And he says, I'm in in Dallas. Well, what are you doing in Dallas? He was getting left and right together uh, to see if there could be a common ground on that. So it made me proud that he was Berkeley and that he was part of Berkeley Bridge movement and that he was uh, trying for putting Pillar 3 in its larger perspective, but Uh, uh, trying to be active in it. And uh, I think at its best, you see Berkeley hatches uh, students like John and that a place like International House, which is outlooking, outreaching to people in other countries, that that very spirit, Berkeley could be a leader In extending to the strangers uh, among us within this own country. Thank you.
1: Okay, so. we have about uh, about 10 minutes uh, to uh, have uh, questions. Uh, uh, and I would just urge you to try to formulate your question concisely and to make sure that it's, a, it's an actual question. OK. Please. The mic is down front in the center. Hi. Great. That was a great talk.
0: Thanks. A lot of uh, thought-provoking things there. Um, I guess, um, you know, I've been an activist for some 30 years. I lived in this house at one point. I guess um, you were addressing mostly federal issues. We could talk about many things. You, uh, you know, we live in the sixth largest economy here in the state, and I guess...
2: We live in a what? Sorry. The sixth
0: largest economy in yes. the state. So when the California legislature makes decisions... Uh, it can really affect the country and the world in many ways. So uh, my recommendation to people is to, to learn their assembly person and their state center and make calls. And, you know, what do you say to that? Is there a lot of uh, room to affect uh, change through, uh, you know, at the state level? We were established as a federal system. People have forgotten that, and we often are only looking at the national government. But is there, is there, isn't there a lot to be done at state levels?
2: There is a lot to be uh, proud of by, in, in this California state and a lot we can do as Californians uh, to reach out. I've just learned of an app that will tell you on any particular day in what state what bill is coming up and what friend in your Facebook pack of friends lives in that state. And it was probably Silicon Valley that (laughs) invented it.
1: I've tried a strategy that hasn't been successful, and so I'd like your comment. Uh, So my feeling is that of all the issues that the left has, which is dozens of issues, they should focus on income inequality and not care about... About gun control, even immigration, even abortion. Like I would pay, I advise everybody to just pay Planned Parenthood a lot. But people are so wedded to their issues that they're not giving up. What, what do I do?
2: Yeah. Um, so your proposal is that all of us pick one main issue. That is a, a hugely primary issue. It's the issue of of, of of a sinking bottom of poverty and uh, loss of democracy. This is a Bernie Sanders issue. Um, My thought would be uh, to hold it... There are many issues, and I think race is a big issue, (laughs) and it underlies the inequality. It's connected with, uh, with... class. Um, um, so do I, I I would put those two things, uh, inequality class and race primary, I guess. Yeah. Hi, thank you for your talk. I'm wondering um, in terms of the A louder, louder, closer to the mic, how's that? Uh, the Finding the strips of common ground that you mentioned. What about the more general shared common humanity of wanting to be happy, not wanting to suffer, wanting caring about our families that aren't political, that aren't charged. Yes, wonderful. Well, when people come together, that's how they come together uh, and create a, a family, a, a, a fellow. Uh, feeling, and I think that the gatherings that the Bridge Alliance is doing kind of start with that, but then you can actually get to these these common grounds. I thought to tell you something recently that just happened. I got a call from uh, someone named Ro Khanna. Anybody know the... He's a Democratic uh, uh, representative in Silicon Valley, and his... uh, in his constituency is Facebook and Google and uh, Intel, Yahoo. He told me, half my constituency are Asian, and uh, I'm Asian myself, Democrat, you know, uh, but I've made a, an alliance with a Republican in Kentucky whose constituency are unemployed coal miners. And What Ro Khanna has done is take a a group of coding trainers to Paintsville, Kentucky, set up a training program, and promising that if you get through the program, you are promised a $40,000 a year job. And the first 30 uh, graduates of this training program have graduated, and you know what they call themselves? They call themselves Silicon Hollow. (laughs) So there are a lot of ways. You get family feeling together, these strips on particular issues, and then some actual uh, imaginative ways of handling real needs.
3: There's the problem of alternative facts.
2: Alternative facts. Facts. We,
3: We... In California, we have a petrochemical industry, but we don't have to choke on the air. And the people who work in that industry don't have to live on $8 an hour wages. And the industry doesn't have to be a a historic um, polluter or or essentially a scofflaw in every way, shape, and form. And we invite more regulation to make it even more so. And we probably have more jobs than they do in the petrochemical belt in Louisiana. They look at it and they say, keep the government out, otherwise it'll choke off our jobs. We look at it and say, make sure we have the regulations in order to ensure that our jobs uh, are consistent with our life. So we have a a, a single item of alternative fact. I'm sure we could run through almost every category of governance, almost every sociological category of data, and find that somewhere or another um, on the ellipses or the parentheses on the coasts, we have circumstances that are that are um, uh, exactly opposite to the circumstances in this area. How do they live with the fact that the way they are doing it is producing an adverse result? Huge unemployment, low wage, bad education, toxic environment, you know, um, crap lifestyle in all every way, shape, and form, except that they can hunt. Because they have multiple guns easily available, and out here, we've got all of the rest of that. But on the good side of it, how do they? How do they? Um, what's the word? Rationalize this disconnect, and how do we get them to understand that it's a factual disconnect?
2: You know, my uh, during World War II, um, my father-in-law had a job. He was based in London. Uh, he spoke German, and uh, he was. For, in a colonel, and his job was to take Nazi officers who were believed in their own truth, right? Fake news, because Hitler was saying, "Oh, uh, London is in shambles. You know, uh, Big Ben is in smithereens, and we're about to win." And so, uh, what my father-in-law. Uh, decided to do was to take these military people put them in a car and uh, go to the center of London and say uh, well you can tell what time it is, look at Big Ben and what restaurant would you like to eat in in other words uh, you, you reveal a truth to a person and then those officers said you know what we're not going to win we've been fed a pack of lies and we're going to help you so uh, there are lots of ways to skin a cat. And one is, uh, is not just to, you know, at a distance say you're stupid, uh, you don't know this. Come, come have a look. Come have a look at uh, California. And when I got this Tea Party um, uh, Trump uh, supporter together with my son, who a member of the California Energy Commission, does this regulating and is... Uh, ardent environmentalist to talk about precisely this thing. Hey, you know, we've got oil too, but we're not choking on it and uh, we're not dying from it. And uh, you know what this Tea Party Trump person's response was? Hey, that's not fair. (laughs) California gets to have it all. That's not fair. Well, okay, that's one of these these you know, symbol stretch, and in this case a value stretch, it's an opening for, for how to talk to people. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Hi, Arlie. Hi. Um, oh, hey. Thank, hi, nice to, to see you. So um, you inspired me to talk to my uh, ardent Trump supporter uh, nephew who I adore. And uh, I thought that was really help. I did end up cussing like a sailor. And we ended up, at, you know, w- back to our love for each other. The one place we came together was where you said about taking money out of politics. So my question for you has been, I would love to hear how you got over your own reactivity, which I imagine you have, uh, in listening. So I'd find that very helpful.
2: Mm. Mm.
4: hmm. Mm. Well. <laughs> Feel your trade yeah. secrets,
2: please. You know, I've written about emotional labor, <laughs> uh, and this kind of research, I think, requires it. But actually, it's interesting. Um, uh, the job of listening was to take my own. A political and moral alarm system off, while I was listening, so that the purpose of my being there was to learn. From that I'll give you an example of how that worked. There was a uh, uh, an evangelical minister's wife who said at a meeting of Republican women of Southwest Louisiana, "I love Rush Limbaugh. You know the conservative radio host. You and." I had a gag response to that at first, um, and then uh, thought, "Oh, I'd really like to talk to you about that." <laughs> and we went uh, out for sweet teas, which you do there. And um, and uh, she said, "I love Rush Limbaugh because uh, he hates feminazis." I thought, "I hope they haven't googled me." <laughs> Second shift. <laughs> um, and uh, then uh, environmental wackos and so on, she went on. And then she was looking at my face, which I was trying to hold <laughs> neutrally. And um, she said, is it hard for you to, I know you don't agree with me, because I told her exactly who I was and what I believed or side I was on. And I said, actually, no, it's not hard. That's not why I'm here. I know about me, but I don't know about you, and you're doing me more of a favor than, I, than you know to open your experiences to me, and I can't tell you how I appreciate it. You know what she said then? Oh, take your alarm system off. I do that too. I do it with my parishioners. I do it with my kids. And then we had that in common and could kind of move from there across vast differences. She was the one who described heaven as a cube of gold. You know, so differences, but, uh, yeah. Thank you. Well,
4: what I get out of that is the focus on understanding as opposed to correcting or changing. Yeah.
2: Yes, yeah. Okay, thanks, Sarah. And you do wonderful work, by the way. Hi. Thank you. Um,
5: That was largely my question, but I guess I also want to ask, um, what else did you learn about yourself, in the process and ways that you had to show up differently or assumptions that you had to check um, in the process of hearing others' perspectives?
2: Well, people ask me, uh, you know, did, uh, did it change my political beliefs? And no, no, it didn't at all. Um, but it did, did it change me? Yes. I would say it did. Because now I walk around with uh, thinking how X or Y, you know, Jenny Sereno or Mike Sheff would think about X or Y or Z. And sometimes it makes me sad to think how they would see some things here at our beloved Berkeley, you know, Um, the Antifa violence, for example. and uh, you know, their conclusion with that is, whoa, you know, your students, they think they're the students or the fascists, you know, the, anyway. So uh, it made me more worried about us. And it, I see a kind of a defensiveness uh, and a non-openness on, on my side. Uh, that has me concerned and has me wanting to uh, work on it. And I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Just two days ago, I was at the New Yorker Festival and um, got to speak with and hear uh, the uh, Reverend William Barber, the the second The Moral Mondays guy from South Carolina. Very spellbinding and... um, very incorporative, and um, he uh, uh, is really an heir, I think, to Martin Luther King in his openness. And what he gets up and says is, "I'm a," uh, he says, "I'm black, I'm white, I'm Indian, I'm uh, in some ways conservative, some ways progressive, I'm all of these things, and." I want to organize, uh, you know, we are organizing in 30 cities a a, a big demonstration for poor children across the country, hold the moral high ground. At the end of his speech, it was like a congregation of a spellbinder thing, and at the end of it, he had each person in the, in the audience say turn to your neighbor and say I will not be depressed <laughs> and you in the audience say I will not be depressed <laughs> and then turn to him and say I will get active <laughs> I will get active and so I came home and I thought you know what I'm going to call I'm going to write Carol Christ and see if we can get this guy <laughs> to Berkeley <laughs> incorporative we need to be incorporative Hi. Um, I am a young woman who has – I'm a freshman at UC Berkeley, undergrad. I have grown up a military kid. I I have experienced, like, all different places and all different kinds of people. And as a young woman who's going to spend the four years of Trump's presidency in at UC Berkeley,
5: how do you suggest we go about, like –
0: receiving our education and going out into the world, finding a job in this kind of, like, culture that's been created and this kind of, like, attitude that's been created in this country? How do you suggest
3: we go about that?
2: Well, um, classroom education, dive in. And as for your experience here at Berkeley, take yourself as a builder of a culture, of of... political discussion and debate. At the moment, I feel that the Berkeley campus culture of political debate reflects the national culture. You have a few polarizing speakers that come in in attack-defend mode. You're either for them or you're against them. There is no middle ground. It's kind of frozen. You don't dare say what you really think. That's a problem. I think we need to really thicken up and enrich the culture of. Uh, I think we need to bring theater into it. We need satirists. We need. Um, we need Reverend Barber. We need <laughs> um, people who have all kinds of projects and uh, that. And I think there is an important place for uh, Berkeley Bridge. So I would invite you to plunge into that set of activities.
5: Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Um, It seems pretty clear to me that um, the kind of awareness that you've um, demonstrated about the um, deep story and climate in in Lake Charles has um, definitely been perceived and is in many ways used by um, political campaigns and news media to exacerbate the sense of um, being uh, hardly done by and others getting ahead. So I guess my question is, when you were in Lake Charles... Um, what is your sense of people's ability to recognize when they're being manipulated and or any um, optimistic views of you know, how in Lake Charles the partisan divide can be minimized or at least not inflamed?
2: Well, there are people there. First of all, there are pockets of of progressives, of course, uh, in this conservative country and and, uh, landscape, and they um, all have friends and relatives who don't agree with them. So actually, they've gotten pretty good at how to do this uh, bridging thing. Many of them just avoid differences and keep their their bonds without that. But um, uh, the... They were as worried about this divide as I was. That was kind of the first thing they would say. Uh, you know, I would say, well, you know, I sort of came in like Mary Poppins. Hi, I'm Artley Hochschild, sociologist at Berkeley, and you'll never remember my last name. And So jokes. Um, and then I would say I'm worried about this divide, growing divide. And that's the first thing they would say. We are, too. We're we're feeling cut off, and and we don't feel you understand us. We feel you're you liberal coastal people are looking down on us, and um, so you go and write a book and set them straight. <laughs> That's kind of what what they would say. Um, but you know what? Ultimately, I would love to see. I think. Uh, We need new mechanisms, social mechanisms, for uh, mixing up the American population. We know that the 46% of Americans who voted for Donald Trump are um, regionally distributed. It's the South and it's the Midwest. We know it's racially distributed, more white, fewer people of color, Uh, and... Um, and class distributed. It's less likely to be highly educated whites. There are Democrats, but much more likely if they're high school educated or lower. So, given that kind of sociological divide, I think we need to look to mechanisms that bridge those structural divides. We used to have. Uh, before 1973, a compulsory draft which did that for men. And we used to have, in its heyday through the labor movement, labor unions used to do that for workers. Uh, But we don't have either of those mechanisms today. So I think it's on us to invent new mechanisms. And uh, what I would love to see is uh, either a... One year, uh, year of voluntary service that kind of mixed high school, uh, mixed young people up, or to have a program through high schools, and to have in your junior year coastal kids go inland, have southern kids go north, have northern kids go south, and for three weeks be the guest in an exchange program. So you don't send your kid off to Italy or France you know, for their experience of the other world, their national world, what you do is uh, introduce them to the strangers uh, in their own country via this. So um, not only, I think we need two things, these new mechanisms uh, for mixing people up, and the result of that Will be to have new questioning about what are true facts and fake facts. I mean, that's going to start some conversations that aren't going on now. So uh, I think um, we need the new mechanisms, and then we all need to become mediators, develop that skill set and apply it in the new world we want to live in. Thank you very much.